actress Katherine Heigl, a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs, says she's been seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. She believes there's a link between canine health and diet. After extensive research, she developed Superfood Complete, a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 today. From Nashville, Tennessee, welcome to Music City 911. I'm Rick Beasley, communications officer retired with 40 years of experience. And I'm Brandon Hall with 20 years and counting. Let's start off today's episode by saying goodbye to a brother in blue from our neighboring town just north of Nashville. Hendersonville Police Master Patrol Officer Spencer Bristol was laid to rest today, January 7th, 2020. The following description was taken from the Officer Down Memorial page, odmp.org. Master Patrol Officer Spencer Bristol was struck and killed by a vehicle while involved in a foot pursuit of a suspect across I-65 near Vietnam Veterans Boulevard in Davidson County. Officers had started pursuing a vehicle with two occupants in Hendersonville. The pursuit continued through Gillettsville until crashing at the interchange. One of the suspects was taken into custody, but the second man fled on foot. Officer Bristol was fatally struck by a vehicle as they ran across I-65. Officer Bristol was a U.S. Navy veteran and had served with the Hendersonville Police Department for four years. He is survived by his wife and three-year-old daughter. Master Patrol Officer Spencer Bristol, end of watch, Monday, December 30th, 2019. On our last podcast, I said I would follow up on the continuing problems at the Nashville 911 Center once Fox 17 TV did their follow-up story. Now, that was supposed to have aired on December the 30th, but instead it aired on New Year's Eve because of a college football game. This is what they had to say. Roll tape. Fox 17 News is investigating if the shortage of 911 dispatchers in Nashville is putting our lives in danger. Fox 17 News' Harriet Wallace is investigating the dangers of this shortage. She's live from Germantown, the site of tonight's New Year's Eve celebration, with more on what's being done about it. Erica, many of our 911 dispatchers are now down here at the New Year's Eve celebration, helping to man this area to keep us safe, which means that we have a skeleton crew and other to handle emergencies elsewhere. The 911 dispatchers and union reps tell me every day we skirt the line of safety, mainly because we don't have enough people to keep us safe. Metro National They're the first to hear our panic cries. But as some dispatchers tell me, it's time for them to be rescued, but no one's listening. They see those the firemen, they see the policemen. You know, they don't see the dispatcher ever. This 911 dispatcher is too afraid to reveal her identity. She says Metro dispatchers are spread way too thin and are mentally, emotionally, and physically worn out. You may not be as sharp to hear that thing that saved somebody's life. You may not be as sharp to hear those first three words and all they have are those three words. You may just not be on your toes and as precise as you as you should be. This dispatcher and the union representing dispatchers says the call center is plagued with several issues like being short 41 positions, according to the department's 2018 report. Just like police and fire departments, dispatchers say they are understaffed, underpaid and overworked, often made to work mandatory overtime to cover shifts. Really, the whole 911 system in Nashville needs a, needs a total uh, revamping. Bud Dozier, a retired Metro fire chief, runs the Box 55 fire relief truck. He says we cannot continue to ignore this problem. Conditions are, are, are not 
anywhere near what they need to be. Again, a new facility, uh, technology needs to be updated. Dispatchers say managers have ignored their complaints. However, department administrators say they recognize the strain, heard the concerns, and are making significant changes to improve the environment and recruit. A union rep tells me Mayor John Cooper promised to help, but they haven't seen any change. His spokesman tells me they recognize the hard work of the dispatchers, and during his campaign, Mayor Cooper promised to fully staff the E911 call center, which remains a priority for the administration. So what can be done? I reached out to the Metro Council Public Safety Committee. Chair Russ Pulley says they are trying to secure funding to increase dispatchers' pay. That's good news for this dispatcher who says if nothing changes soon, she'll join the rest and walk out. The assistant director at the department tells me that they have adjusted the testing process for new hires and they're also recruiting seasoned dispatchers who left, hoping that they'll return to fill in those holes. We'll, of course, stay on top of this and make sure that everyone is safe. We're live here in Germantown. Harriet Wallace, Fox 17 News, your Code Red Station. The assistant director they talked to for the story was Michelle Peterson. Now let me say here that I really thank a lot of Michelle and I consider her to be a friend. I'd love to see her as the director of the Nashville 911 Center, but that's not my call. She is not the assistant director over operations, however, where the nightmare problems are taking place. That falls to another assistant director who is also the current acting director. While the things she mentioned are positive, I can't imagine anyone who left wanting to come back unless they're crazy. Why? Well, nothing's changed. As well, not one reference was made in the story regarding the problem of mistreatment and nitpickiness against my brothers and sisters still there. This is the foundation of all the other issues. The issue is not solely hiring. It's the retention of the people hired. Therein lies the biggest problem. After hiring them, and they're on the 911 floor after training, that's when the mistreatment starts of hounding them, chewing them out, writing them up on disciplinary action, etc. That's also when they get fed up and they quit the organization. Now, they have all of their certifications, have been well trained, and they'll go to work for another 911 center who will be happy to have them, because they've been trained for them. Untold thousands of dollars spent training them, and now they're gone from us, all because they was mistreated by someone in authority who doesn't need to be there or in authority. I'll sum it up for you. It's like painting a boat to make it look pretty. When on one end, it has a hole in it with water gushing in. That's the mistreatment issue. It will sink if nothing is done to fix that. And all the prettiness done on the other issues won't keep that from happening. We'll continue to follow the story as we need to. And kind of to go off of what you said, Bees, about the uh, current interim director, uh, just to kind of point out something here. She didn't really uh, create any these problems. They've been going on for years. But... Right now, she's in a unique position to where she can fix or at least start to fix some of the problems that we do have that are ongoing up there. And let me also add that I'm very fond of uh, our interim director right now. I've worked with her for the whole time I've been there. She's been, in one way or another, a supervisor of mine the whole time I've been there. And we've never had you know, so much as a crossword with each other. Differing opinions, just like anybody else would have. That happens with with anyone, even just basic floor personnel. But uh, she's always been really nice, kind, and fair to all the employees I know, and everyone up there likes her. Look, I worked with her for decades, okay? And these problems didn't start overnight. This has been a situation that has literally been going on for years unchecked. And, and I'd go as far at this point to say whoever – the new director is, whether it's someone from within house or someone from outside, the mayor needs to see that they make a commitment to, to spend some level of time there because this didn't start occurring overnight and it's not going to be fixed overnight. You're, you're looking at a situation that's going to take years 
to, to get that ship righted. And one of the reasons that we're doing this, it's not just necessarily a Nashville problem. It's not something that's just held over our heads here in Nashville with our brothers and sisters that I still work with. This is a problem that could be plaguing any center uh, around the nation. It could be just literally any place in America could have smaller problems that end up becoming bigger problems, and they just kind of snowball from there. They just keep on rolling if they are left unchecked. That's what's going to happen, and people will start leaving. And moving on from there, we're going to get into our first big call that we've covered, and it's something that America, everyone here, has heard about. It's going to be the Aurora, Colorado shooting that took place on July 20th, 2012. It was a uh, an active shooter that happened inside the Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. And it was going to be during the midnight screening of the film The Dark Knight Rises. It was uh, one of the deadliest shootings in America uh, where 12 people were killed and 70 others were injured for a total of 82 casualties. So what we have here for you tonight is a series of audio recordings, some from the actual 911 calls made from the people inside the theaters, and uh, some that's after that is going to be mainly the dispatch in. That's going to be the bigger portion of it, where it actually kind of shows how the scene unfolded. So we're going to have a start to nearly finish of what happened. We're going to pause along the way in between a couple of the calls just because there are so many to talk about. And on that note, listener discretion is advised. Roll tape. Hello, where's your emergency? I can't hear you. What address? I can't hear you. Give me the address again. There's some stuff. What address? The reason we played this cold for you is because this is the way that we're going to receive the call. And uh, just uh, because it's such a short clip, we're going to go ahead and play this again for you just to get you have a little bit more of an idea of what was going on and have something for you to listen to. This was one of the very first calls that came in from inside the theater while the shooting was actually still happening. It's kind of hard to hear the caller because of all the gunshots in the background, the the kind of thumping that you hear in the background. That's the the shots going off in the background. I didn't count how many, but I I would imagine that was probably upwards of 15 or 20 just on that short call. Roll tape. There's no doubt in my mind, if I had picked up that call, that those are shots being fired. Now, what's problematic for me is if I lived in that city, would I have been able to determine any address that this guy was trying to give? So I I don't know. To me, it was shots fired and a bunch of mumbling. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, that happens, especially with something like that, cell phones in general, they don't have a very good microphone on them. If they hear a loud noise, it's going to compress everything else around there. So as these loud shots are being fired, and we're we're talking really loud, uh, AR-15 and, and shotgun both were used in this. They're going off inside of a closed environment, inside of a movie theater, and it's compressing the microphone on on their cell phone. So the chances of you actually hearing a good address from what this person is saying or what he's saying at all, it's it's really slim to none. But at that point, more and more calls had been coming in, uh, the, literally hundreds of phone calls from inside this place. We've just got a couple of them here. And as I said, this was just one of the initial calls. It sounded, to me anyway, like they hadn't received any phone calls about that just yet. So 
it was brand new, just like you said, bees. It, they were getting cold just like we do. And you was talking about the compression of the call. We don't know where he was calling from if he was in the theater, whether he was in the lobby, whether he was in the uh, auditorium where the movie had been playing. But wherever it was, if it was within an enclosed location, and it sounds like, uh, as you said, it was, it had to sound like a cannon going off in there to him. Um, at that point, he's just trying to figure out where the shots are coming from to avoid being hit. From the call taker side of it, she's trying to find out where he is because she doesn't know what's going on. She hasn't determined that it is shots being fired, and she's just trying to get him some help. Yeah, and, and from there, there, there's no telling what's going on in the mind. It, initially, it does sound like gunshots. I'm hoping when he said somewhere in there that someone's shooting, she replied about it. You know, she did try to get the address several times. Uh, you know, back then, it was in 2012. I'm not sure where we were at as far as 911, and especially their agency, too, if they had come up with the, the phase two of what we call phase two. It's, it's like a GPS location from your cell phone that we would get when you call in on 911. I'm not sure if they had that or not. If they did, then that at least helped a little bit as far as getting the location narrowed down some. But if they didn't, that that was all they got. They they had nothing on it, and they probably just had to wait for more phone calls from there to come in and someone give them an exact location of, of where this is actually taking place at. Right, and on this particular call, what was troubling to me is – as I said earlier, I was able to determine that it was shots being fired. When that phone went dead, had he been hit or been killed? Yeah. And now I don't know where to send the help to. Exactly. And we don't know which, if this was a victim, if he if he was just a, a bystander, if he, just like you said, could have been outside the theater too. From the sound of it, I think he was probably actually inside the theater as loud as it is just because they use a lot of sound ending inside of the theater. So I think he was actually inside the theater itself when it happened. But from there, uh, we won't be able to get through all the calls. There likely hundreds of them that came in. Uh, the next one we have is actually from one of the victims himself saying that he has been shot. So here we go with the next one. Roll tape. You were hit. Do not hang up, I need to bring Aurora on the phone, okay? Do not hang up. Just, 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 just. Oh, my gosh. Oh. I got the county line. I'm going to see what's it. See? I got shot. I got hit. I'm so good, and I'm bleeding. I'm watching. I'm going to hit the line. I'm going to hit the line. I'm going to hit the line. From that, we heard one of the victims that had been shot. It, uh, you know, to me, it sounds like they probably have multiple agencies that work within either a county or a district out there. And they, in, in circumstances like this, you may get police on one. You may have a separate fire agency, a separate EMS agency, and that's kind of what it sounded like. It made to someone else, it may just sound like, oh, they're passing along to someone, some other agency, whatever, like that. It's a necessity. When I started up there, and I think probably for you too, bees, and I'm sure it was back, you know, all the way back then, in the, when Jesus was around, <laughs> yeah. we had to put our, uh, we would take the initial call on 911, and then from there, if they needed an ambulance or fire truck or anything like that, we had to put them up to the fire department's uh, portion of the communication center, mm -hmm. and then from there, they would actually bring the, the the fire equipment out or whatever they had to. There was a little delay though because we had to ring them up just like anywhere else. Yeah, they were in a different part of our building. These people here, they could be in completely different buildings from each other across town, across county, or Lord knows where. Well, we've got a county close to us that is more of a call center. They're the receiving point, and then they send it to uh, other jurisdictions within that county. And, of course, we don't know that that's not what was happening here. Yeah, and I— I'm sorry to say I don't know too much about their uh, comm center out there. If if we have any people listening that were employed there that day, uh, I, I, f I feel terrible for you um, just from hearing all that y'all had to hear that day. What was outstanding about this call is the call taker was just great 
in getting control of that call and getting in control of it quick. Uh, the person calling in uh, did equally as well because he, he was paying attention to her, did exactly what she told him to do, uh, and, and that one went well considering what was going on. The next call is an escalated one, so you may wish to jump ahead about five minutes. The audio is not as clear as the previous two, and we'll discuss the reasons for that after the call. This may well be the connection the call taker heard. Roll tape. As we said before, the audio quality on that wasn't that great, but 
there's a lot to contribute to that. Number one, and probably it may be the only reason, is the amount of just mass chaos that's happening behind this this woman in the theater. There are people there that are screaming, yelling, trying to get help. At various stages, there are police officers showing up. There's just way too much going on. And it, it might be, if you can imagine, if you've ever been at a music concert or you know, dance club or something along that lines, and you've tried to use your cell phone while in one of those loud spaces like that, you just can't hear anybody on the other end, no matter how, how much they're trying. And you can pretty much, on, on this recording, the, the dispatcher on this, the call taker, you could tell what he was saying pretty cleanly. There were several times, though, that it just the audio on her end just broke up. Uh, and I, I almost completely contributed that just from the amount of chaos that was going on in the background. There were definitely two cousins that were in various stages of injury. Uh, one, there was no doubt, was laying there, not breathing. Um, the call taker did everything within his power yes, he did. To, to, to reel her in. Uh, she couldn't hear him. I think there was even one place on the tape where she said that she didn't know how when he was telling her, we've got to do CPR. Notice as well, for those of you not in the industry, that he's telling her, we have to do CPR. It's not a question, would you like to do it? Because nobody wants to have to do that. So you bypass that as even an option. Uh, the operations room the 911 operations room at that point is absolute hell i can assure you and the scene where she's calling from is is probably more of a hell cuz they're the ones having to deal with all the people lying out there on the on the on the floor in various stages of injury so it's a bad it's a bad feeling all the way around now as i was listening to this it reminds me of calls that uh, we get where a mother calls in about her baby that has SIDS and she's found the baby unresponsive and all they do is scream. I mean, scream, scream, scream. There's no getting these people in control. That's what you're trying to do. And you understand that with every second that passes, if you don't get them in control, that's one more second that you may not get that baby back. It is one of the most horrible calls you'll ever get. Yeah, and I, both of us have taken calls just like that. And to kind of go on uh, something you were saying, too, about the, the actual dispatch center there be, just being an absolute hell, there's been a couple while I've been working up there where we've had, not on the scale of the amount of victims that uh, this shooting happened uh, or had, but just the fact that it was an unknown situation immediately all we got was there's an active shooter and then roll from there. And then everybody jumps in. We've talked about this a little bit before. Everybody jumps in on the call from every level, from the call taken to the dispatchers on the police side, on the fire side, EMS. We have just the line level supervisors, managers, directors. Everybody's in there at that point. That's the one focus of the entire operation going right there. We've got to organize every little bit of equipment that we can to go out there. For from their end, I'm not exactly sure how big Aurora is. It, uh, I would imagine, is a decent sized place if they have a, a multiplex movie theater. But I can almost assure you they do not have enough ambulances to carry out 80 people at one time. So they're having to organize triage. They're they're organizing just any number of things out in the parking lot. And even further, just to try to get these people transported to the hospital. And that's another piece of it, too. How overwhelmed the hospitals are going to be in the matter of minutes. And probably not even that long. Once they start getting the first victims out and they start rolling them, just one right after the other, the most critical first, going from there, they could have their entire hospital completely filled and not enough doctors, not enough nurses. They're calling in extra help to get more uh, people there inside the hospitals, just like I would imagine probably this call taken uh, and dispatch center, 
they probably put out a page or however their notification system is to get more people in there to help with everything that was going on. The best two words that I can use from the communication center in and the hospital in is organized pandemonium. While on the subject of organized pandemonium, our next segment that we have is a bit of our dispatch radio traffic that we would have from there on the scene. The total time of this police radio traffic that we have is a little over 18 minutes total, but it is only a snippet of likely unlimited traffic. This will, however, give all of you guys a good example of how this evolves along that 18 minutes. And you'll see kind of not necessarily start to finish, but you'll see how when the responders actually got to the scene, how the scene just kind of unfolded right there in front of them. Absolutely. Uh, And on the note of it being such a long uh, 18 and a half or however long it was, minutes, we're going to cut kind of in the middle of it in different sections. That way we can break down pieces of it at a time. That way we won't have to try to digest the entire thing all at once and remember it all as it's going along. And listener uh, discretion is advised roll tape 316 okay unit sent by for a tower 315 and 314 for a shooting at century theaters 14 300 east alameda avenue they're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium units responding to the shootings which do remain on channel two channels back to normal 315 and 314 there is at least one person that's been shot but they're saying there's hundreds of people just running around
I've said before here how important it is for the dispatcher to remain calm. Even with the shooter still inside, she maintains calm and control. It's an outstanding job. The officers out in the field, while heightened, did the exact same. And a couple things that we were going to go over about this. Like we said, we're going to break this down into segments because there's so much involved in this. Uh, a couple of things when in the initial part of this call, when it came in, it sounded like they just were talking about getting reports of a shooting. They didn't uh, give too much of the location info. I think they've probably already given that out before we had this part of the tape. Um, but they started talking about the RP uh, that's reporting party uh, for, you know, we have different things here in Nashville. We call them complainants. And uh, other parts of the country may call them something else. But in, the, in this uh, instance, it's going to be the reporting party. Now, we heard all kinds of different victim descriptions, how from the initial part, when the officers arrived on the scene, there was one outside. Then they made it inside the lobby to more victims. And then when they finally made entry inside the theater, or were actually about to, one of the officers said, somebody spraying gas inside mm-hmm. later on in the call they uh, were talking about that they needed some gas masks to go inside uh, they I think they initially said something about OC spray which uh, it's it's not a deadly spray but it's enough to where you you wouldn't be able to see or breathe that well so the gas mask would have helped out in that instance um, they made a staging area for ambulances or at least determined one and from from that point, I think they finally made it inside the theater itself, theater number nine. And from that part, they had to start realizing how many victims they really had. And even at that point, when you first walk into this theater, if you can imagine uh, a theater that seats hundreds of people, and just like you said, organized pandemonium, this was not organized at all when they got in there. It was just sheer pandemonium the amount of people that had been shot that had been exposed to this OC spray or whatever kind of spray it was. Then later on, they did say they had a suspect detained out back, but they wanted a perimeter around the entire mall. And then they needed some cars to shuttle out some of the victims. Well, they had found the car with all of the, all of the items in there that led them to believe that was the suspect. And as I've said here before, it's also important that a perimeter be set because with all this stuff going on, the more people you send in there, the more people that you may be sending in there to be shot or killed because you, you haven't cordoned things off. You know, there needs to be a place determined that's a place of safety 
uh, until things can become more organized. And the perimeter, you have to you have to have that set up for you know a multitude of reasons. Past that, one of the main things is to make sure the suspect does not get out. Well, at least hopefully doesn't get out. Absolutely, he could easily walk out with any of the the rest of the victims. There's no telling what he could do. Uh, from kind of what our reports were, it's, it kind of almost sounded like he wanted to get captured. Um, you know, that's how they got him so easily. I, I think he, uh, another report we had though, was one of his guns jammed up and he was actually on the way out to his car to get more guns. And that's when they got him. Uh, it, it was pretty obvious that, uh, in, in an instance like this where you have a mass shooting, there's, uh, someone spraying gas on the inside, a regular theater patron wouldn't be wearing a gas mask in a situation like that. Well, he did. He definitely didn't have an end game figured out. No. And, uh, there'll be some more we get into uh, about it here in a little bit. We're going to uh, continue this tape going, uh, until the next segment that we have on it is over with. You'll just see it develop even more. So here we go. All right. Continue on. I want my fire trucks there also, and I'll start bringing them in to triage people and get them out. I just need them to get ready and get litters to the front of Century 16, and we'll start getting people out. Lincoln 25, copy. 302, I'm taking one male to the hospital in my car. 302, Adam, okay. 16, I got seven down in theater nine. Seven down. Copy, we'll notify fire. Seven down in theater nine. Give me some officers in nine so we can get the, the movable victims out. Need more units in theater nine. 
me know what hospitals you're taking them to so we can give them a heads up. Maybe 25, just notify all the hospitals we got people coming in. Copy. Uh, to start at the perimeter to the south, a location which will be Abilene and Exhibition Table in Exhibition. Then I'm going to need a car from that point to take a location to the north at Abilene and uh, Alameda. Yeah, I'm clear. Okay, post on the hallway. Better want anybody coming up we might have missed. Repeat, if they are mobile, get them outside. We have a few that are not mobile. We need a rescue crew in here right away. Copy, I'll read tell them again. Metro 11, we're at one patient south. Metro 11, copy, one patient south. Join officers at the uh, exit from the theater to be uh, assistance of the car so we can check people leaving, checking for injury parties, checking for parties that might be on. I'd like to have two cars at every point at those locations. Cruiser 29, okay. Cruiser 25, the next ambulance is come in. I'm going to direct them down to the east side of the uh, theater. We need rescue or we need more patrol cars back to the seaside. We're just going to take these people. Expedition, get down here. Denver. Rifle. Going to be uh, 5.56 caliber. <laughs> oh, sorry. Officer, do you need rescue as well? No. Cruiser 49, I'm already identifying parties who saw the entire thing as it unfolded. So cars continue to stop people and ask questions as to what they saw. We get out southbound and we you in. Yes, I went out the farthest south entrance. And now I'm going down uh, Expedition to Abilene. all open. All right. Cruiser 6 is taking two more victims. Guys been shot in the neck. Has anybody been upstairs in this theater? Yes. They're working on it now. Do we have bodies upstairs or we're planning on doing that? We're clearing it now. Okay. 16, I need somebody to nine still. We're moving five. I'm going my police car. I still need some ambulances over here. Copy. I'll let him know. Lincoln 25, everybody inside. Realize that behind the screens, those are open venues, so you need to check behind those screens also. <laughs> if they get a hold of Denver or ambulance, have them roll on it. Let Aurora South know that Cruiser 6 is in route one critical, one uh, semi-critical. Okay, and we do have truck two in route to theater nine, and medical personnel is in route to theater nine now. I need any available patrol car back here or an ambulance. Lincoln 41. Lincoln 41. We need rescue to move up to the rear of the theater. We have officers there. Uh, we're requesting they come immediately for multiple victims. Okay, two things of note here. This is an unconventional call, and that's an understatement. So there will be times when there will be unconventional means of dealing with that call. In this case, uh, you've heard patrol units loading people up and taking them to the hospital. You don't have time to wait for an ambulance because the ambulance is already being taxed on how many can, can get rolling over there. So you've got to get these people out of there. The second thing is you'll find as you take these calls, the more people on the scene to give you a description, the more varied your descriptions are going to be. Uh, for example, you know, I may think the individual had on blue jeans, and I'm really passionate about that, but the other person really had the right description in saying that they had on a black pair of pants, but I'm so passionate about what I've said, they end up saying, well, no, he really thinks the guy had on blue jeans, so maybe he had on blue jeans. So you start talking other people out of what may have been a more accurate description. So if you go into a bank robbery, for example, and there was two people in the bank when it was being robbed, that may be your most accurate description. Conversely, if you walk into a bank and there's 15 people in there, you're going to get all kinds of things from he didn't have a beard, he did, he didn't have a mustache, he did, he was bald-headed, no, he had long hair. I mean, it can get crazy. Oh, yeah, and any times that we've had any type of larger incident like that, and even small ones, even a, a simple one-person shot, and I say simple, there's nothing simple about it, but compared to this, one-person shot is absolutely simple. If there's multiple people around, even some people that don't don't see anything at all, they're hearing reports or whatever from other people, and they'll just go along with it. So you'll get, you'll have five different people. You have five different descriptions of what this guy, the, the person actually looked like. It's, exactly it's hard right. to nail down. And going back on this segment of the call anyway, there was still a lot going on. Initially, I was wondering if there was any type of, uh, you know, them compressing any, any of the gaps in the actual uh, audio themselves between from one, like what the dispatcher saying to what the officers are saying, the more this plays out, the more I'm thinking, 
I don't think it's compressed at all. It just sounds like that much radio traffic back to back to back to back to back, just rapid fire the whole time. Well, one one thing that was confusing to me uh, in the first segment of the dispatch uh, call that we played, uh, my understanding was they had a suspect and the car with things in it. Well, in the second part of that tape, they were getting descriptions of the suspect. So that was a little odd to me. Yeah, I think they, they caught the, the suspect on his way out. And, you know, a, a lot of things here, they're clearing, you know, the rest of the theater. Um, and when we say clearing, that means they're going through the actual theaters themselves w- with the police officers, making sure there's no more victims and also that there's not a suspect there. They also mentioned, uh, if you, you heard, it sounded like, I'm not sure if he took command of the situation, but it sounded like he had probably the best hold on everything. I believe it was unit number L25. He was asking for uh, the units to also go in the upstairs area above the theaters and as well as that behind the actual screens themselves because there's some area back there uh, that they may not have paid attention to. This is just to make sure there's no further victims that we, we, they haven't actually uh, passed over and, past that there may be more than one shooter or may, there might be just a shooter back there they're they're walking in as soon as they uh, have walked in here they've walked into a just a mass chaos that has jumped out at them and we just heard pro- not probably 10 minutes into this this dispatch the, the radio traffic of it they still hadn't even turned the movie off yet the movie's still playing in the background they had to ask somebody can somebody please go up there and turn the movie off? Yeah, that was odd. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking that when the shooting started, the projectionist or however they worked it, he probably ran out of the theater just like everybody else did, and there was nobody there to turn it off. They may not even have good lighting at that point. They may not, not have had the house lights up. Right. So, and getting back uh, into the chaos end of it, on the dispatch side, you've heard how, how fast-paced that was. At one point, they said they needed to unpatched channel two and three that to me means they probably had two or three different um police agencies working with each other on a patch together radio so you had two separate radio channels working as one it became too much there was too much radio traffic on that so they ended up making those two separate channels i believe they said channel uh, channel two was going to be the inside of the theater and the channel three was going to be the outside of the theater so anybody that was actually doing the work on the inside of the theater, they'd be on one channel. Anybody doing the perimeter or outside or staging area, they'd be on the outside of the theater, so a completely different channel. Um, and you, you heard, I think it was L25 again, saying, we've only got one ambulance here. Where are my ambulances at? Um, they, just like you said, they started loading people into patrol cars to take victims uh, to the hospitals. And they at one point said, they said, do we need to notify the hospital? Yes, notify every hospital. We're going to have victims going out to all of them. You had mentioned unpatching the radios. Uh, There was a point earlier in the tape where they had said that they had patched the radios. So there was a reason why they unpatched them, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think the the reason probably initially they patched the radios together was to get as many units on the scene. If you've listened to, to our previous couple episodes, there's... I believe one segment where we talked about using all airs for us, uh, because we have so many radio channels for just our jurisdiction, uh, we would patch them all together to get as many units notified as possible for bigger calls for their agency. It sounds like it was a smaller and uh, comprised of several different agencies. They had patched the radio radio channels together to make sure that all their units and any surrounding unit they could get could go out there as well. Makes sense. All right, so we're going to move on to the next little piece of it. I'm going to go ahead and let it play now, and we'll get back here with you in, uh, for discussion here in just a second. Continue on. Down the screens because there's recesses behind them. They're huge. And hey, we've got five possible employees in here. We're searching them now. This is Denver Radio, um, Blue Southeast. Do I have any Denver cars on Blue Southeast now? 312. Denver, Jack, Clear. Break. Dispatch to Aurora. Denver Radio to Aurora Radio on Blue Southeast. To Aurora Radio. Clear. We have our cars switched over to Blue Southeast now. Copy. 73 on Blue Southeast. Copy, Denver. 
Number 
Lincoln 25D1, all available PD to meet you at the Dillard's lot. I want all available PD cars to stage in the Dillard's lot. I can't have a whole bunch of people parking around. Everybody stage in the Dillard's lot, and I want all those ever agencies just to come to the front of the store so we can start segregating people. Copy. Any available units that are not doing transports, you can stage in the Dillard's lot. Cruise 25, I'll be out front with the Denver and Inglewood guys. We're going to be moving to the front of the Century Theater. Cruiser 10 on services. Oh, services is patched. All right, just get CSI over here when they get a chance. Copy. Yankee 46, where do you need me? Go to the Dillard slot, that's where everybody's staging. Metro 10, I'm sending another victim with the other CSI truck. Copy. Copy. Copy, thank you. I have no further, if you could at least check the area for us, I have no further information. 1690 South Moline Street, 100 blocks from Moline is 11500. Radio to Denver Attack 37, go ahead with your update. Updated version, suspect in all black, black tactical vest, black tactical helmet, balaclava, gas mask, full tactical gear, at least one handgun, possible shotgun, and possible one other long gun. Denver 316, I just been told we still have employees in the break area inside the theater. Denver 316, clear employees still in the break area in the theater. Break dispatch to Aurora Reefer. This is Aurora, go ahead. For our cars on scene, we're getting a report of employees still inside the break room inside of the theater. Copy, we're tied. thank you. Denver 316, it'll be between theaters 14 and 15, I believe. If you face the theaters on the right-hand side. Copy, Denver. Denver 673 to 660, where you at? That was the last segment of that 18-plus-minute recording that uh, we, we've both talked about that's likely went on for days and days after that. There was still, even that that last little piece, a lot going on. Uh, we heard that Denver, which was, I guess, uh, pretty close by agency, had units en route, and then more units en route, and more and more and more. The sheer amount of the Denver units en route uh, is one of the reasons they had to have a staging area out there. And even then, it it probably, there was not enough room for everything that was, all the units that were out there. They were using other places, parking lots, side roads, everywhere they can. And the dispatcher in this, once again, did an amazing job. She was able to take down every single Denver unit, their unit numbers. Copy them right back and say them right back over the, the radio. And and there's a reason for this. If you've got an, a lot of units out on the scene, especially from outside agencies like this one here had, you want to keep track of them. So if at any point in this, there is another shooter or there's something else going on, those units are accounted for. If uh, they lose radio contact or if they're trying to get someone on the radio and they're not answering, you have to be accountable for that that officer. So in this instance, uh, when she's actually copying down all this information, as well as all the other information she's she's had through the entirety of this, she's copying it down. She's passing along the information to anybody else that needs it and just continues on. She did an outstanding job. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard anything close to it as far as recordings go or even coworkers just to keep up with it that quickly and repeat everything back. It was pretty amazing. And one of the things that uh, we've both been um, exposed to, uh, we've actually had our own in-house active shooter training specifically for 911 dispatchers. And uh, being that we're involved in the industry, we've, we were privy to a little bit more information than what the public had. Most people probably have heard that he had uh, some explosives in his apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh what they didn't really tell you was how that was actually planned out. This guy actually wanted to kill more police officers. The way his plan was, was that he was going to go at before all this happened, before he went and did the shooting, he had rigged his entire apartment up with, with explosives inside his apartment. He was going to turn on his music as loud as he could and then go and leave his door just barely cracked. And the ignition to all these explosives was as soon as someone opened the door, they would go off. What he didn't count on, though, was a neighbor of his actually coming up and hearing all this loud music going up and actually pulling the door shut, which he had locked beforehand. It was a mistake on his end. So when they actually got there and tried to open the door, they couldn't. And 
that probably saved people's lives right there. The, the police officers and, and Lord knows how many people inside the actual apartment complex that he lived in. There, there could have been more victims there. Luckily, they were able to get in there and defuse all the bombs and, and everybody on that scene was safe. And that was actually the next day before they even got over there from all this chaos that happened on the scene. Normally, we try to leave you guys on an up note. So here it is for you. The son of a bitch, as you know, was captured and tried. What you may not know, he was convicted and sentenced to 12 consecutive life sentences, meaning one will be served after another, plus 3,318 years with no possibility of parole. The only thing he'll see is hell. I'm Rick Beasley. And I'm Brandon Hall for Music City 911. Take care, guys. And we'll see you.